East Coast Creepin' contains graphic and explicit content, which may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Good day, and welcome to our podcast, East Coast Creepin'. I'm Linda. I'm Lorraine. And I'm Leslie. We're three sisters from the Baltimore, Maryland area. Each week, Leslie will give her reaction to the true crime and paranormal stories that Lorraine and I tell from up and down the East Coast. As a reminder, we do not have a background in criminal justice, criminal investigation, medicine, or psychology. This is all for informative purposes. (laughs) I literally don't know how to go about this. Hi, everyone. It's Lorraine, and I'm all by myself. It is another one of those episodes because your girl here is a frontline worker, and I got the vid again. Apparently, I tested positive, and I was not a happy camper. I am still not a happy camper, even though I tested negative yesterday, which was like uh, Sunday, Tuesday, Monday, Thursday, Friday. It's like been four days, five days since I tested positive, whatever. So I've been hanging out by myself with Jonathan and the dog, and I can't be around my sisters because, yeah, but don't worry. It will be a regular episode where it is all of us coming up soon because that's the way the world works, I guess. I think I messed with something. Who knows? Anyway, so since I'm by myself today, I had messaged one of my friends because I was like, I don't know what I want to do. (laughs) I kind of like, I have a story. So next week's going to be fun because we potentially have a special guest next week. Who knows? But anyway, so I'm like, I don't want to do like the end of my little series thing by myself because like my sisters. So I decided that I am going to do a story investigation that has always piqued my interest. Like, this is one of those ones where it's just like, what the hell actually happened? And yes, Leslie, this is real. Okay. This is, it's slightly like the Russian sleep experiment because it's weird, but this is real. Okay. I promise. And... (laughs) It's also from Russia. (laughs) I guess technically it's like the Soviet, you know, maybe I should Google this. I'm pretty sure it's Russia. (laughs) Hold on, you guys. I'm bad even by myself. Like I, (laughs) and then like the worst thing is like, I'm sitting here like I'm all by myself, but I make myself laugh all the time. I don't know if that's a good thing. So I'm just like, who knows? Who knows? I mean, I guess. So it's the Soviet Union, so we could potentially be in Russia. Who freaking knows? You, you know what? Let me... <laughs> uh, let's see. Also, because both Jonathan and I tested negative, uh, he is currently out in the world at his parents. So if you hear, like, crazy barking... That's because he probably came home and Fen is now going insane. But little pooper pupper is hanging out over here. Okay. Yeah, so it's Russia. It's still Russia, even 
See, I got this. Apparently, it has 4.8 stars on uh, Google. <laughs> okay, everyone. I'm sending out. You guys, I haven't really been near humans this week, and like, I'm slightly antisocial ish. I don't know if you could tell, but like, my job, I hang out with people a lot, even though like, I got some crazy hours. So I start at 3 a.m. and I'm home when I get home. So I'm home when I'm done my day. But like, I see a lot of people. And so like, I get my energy out. I am like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed first thing in the morning. It's obnoxious. I was never a morning person until I started this job. It took me like a year to get this way. It's three years later, so who knows. Anyway, I've just been trapped. (laughs) And I'm like, let me out. (laughs) Ah, Okay, so today we are talking about diet, diet love pass. That's what I'm going with. If I'm wrong, I'm assuming I'm wrong because I don't know how to say this. And everywhere I've heard, it's pronounced different. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm probably only going to say it once. And then after that, I'm going to refer to it as the pass. Okay. (laughs) So this is about a group of expeditionist explorers, hikers, um, sure, that's what we'll call them. And this is from 1959. And once again, yes, Leslie, this is real. Oh my goodness. Okay, I know I'm so off topic and I haven't even gotten there yet. <laughs> Sorry. I like got Mio. I don't know if you guys use those little squeezy Mios, but I normally get the berry one. Oh man, that was sour. And I wanted to be a cool kid, and I wanted to make, like, a Arnold Palmer, like, a half and half, right? Like, sweet tea and lemonade. So I bought a sweet tea one and a lemonade one, and Jonathan was like, uh, have you tried that one? I'm like, I'm going to make an Arnold Palmer. It's going to be good. Y'all, that thing needs, like, 20 more ounces of that sweet tea mix. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, getting on with my life so I can get this out to you guys. So in 1959, there was a group formed. It was like a skiing expedition, and they were going to go across the North Urals. Urals? In my head, this sounds so much better. The North Urals in the Soviet Union, okay? But since the Soviet Union was obviously like a couple different countries, but this is Russia. We're in Russia. So there is a prospector, and he has documents that were found that suggested the expedition was named for the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was probably dispatched by a local organization. I cannot say that name, so I don't know why I put all these names in my notes. Igor Dyatlov. Dyatlov. (gasps) I think that's right. (laughs) Dyatlov, because whatever, it sounds right is a 22-year, for shit's sake, Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institution. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was the leader, and he assembled a group of nine others for the trip. Most of them were fellow students, and they were also peers at the university that he went to. I guess institution, it's now called the Ural Federal Institution. 
university. So did I say institution? I have no one to like check me until I edit this. (laughs) The initial group was 10 people. So it was him and nine others. It was eight men and two women. And so this is like his little group of companions that he has. And each member of the group was an experienced hiker. All of them are experienced hikers. And they have ski tour experience and they all had received grade three certificate upon their return of like doing this grade two hiking. I don't know what these grades mean. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. (laughs) So at this time, so in like the 1950s, a grade three was the highest, highest certificate you could get as far as like adventurous hiking kind of person. And you had to traverse 300 kilometers, which is 190 miles and be successful. So they are all grade three hikers. The route that was designed by Dyatlov's group was to reach the far northern regions of this area and the upper streams of the Lazva River. And the route was approved by the City Route Commission, okay? Everything about this, it's not sketch. Like, everything is being approved, okay? They're a division of, like, a physical culture and sports committee. And they confirmed the group of 10 people, and they gave them all the things they needed on January 8th, 1959. So the goal of their expedition was to reach... Oh, no, shitballs. They were going to reach... Otoritan. <laughs> I said that totally wrong, just throwing that out there. And it is a mountain in the pass. So this route was estimated to be a category three hike, like trail, whatever. And this is the most difficult type to traverse, which was why they all needed to kind of like, I guess they did like a background check to make sure that they had the experience in order to go on this trail because this is actually a pretty dangerous trail. They decided that they would undertake this expedition in the most difficult time of the year to traverse this terrain in February. So on January 23rd of 1959, the group was issued their route book. It contained a list of the course course uh, following a trail. So they had like a specified trail that they had to take. So it was trail number five, and it was approved for 11 people. The 11th person, he was previously certified to go on an expedition of the similar difficulty as this one. I don't know. It doesn't really say to, we'll get there. So he, there was 11 people. So in their books, it had that there was 11 explorers going together. That's all that matters. The Dyatlov group left the city the same day they received their route book. So they got all their shenanigans together. It's January 23rd of 1959. They get their route books. They're like, yes, we're going. So they took a truck to a village, and it was the last inhabited settlement to the north before they hit the trail. And they spent the night there. They all purchased what they would need. Like if there was anything else that they needed, they ate there. They apparently got like loaves of bread so they could eat all their carbs and have the energy for the next day. January 27th, they begin their trek towards this mountain. 
on the 28th, there was one member. His name is Yuri. Yuri? Yuri? Oh, geez. Yuri. And he had a couple of health conditions that I don't know why they approved him if he had these previous conditions, but you know, who am I? He had like rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. And they were just like, yeah, you can go on this grade three trail. What? Excuse me? What? Like, no, I wouldn't even put him on like a kiddie coaster. What are you talking about? Anyway, so he turned back because while he was there, he was having some knee pain and some joint pain. And he was like, you guys, I cannot do this hike with you. I'm really sorry. I can't do it. So the remaining three went on their way. So now we're down to seven guys and two girls. I guess ladies, we'll call them ladies because they're like in their 20s. On January 31st, the group had arrived to the edge of a highland area and they were like, okay, cool. This is where we're going to start climbing. And then in that part of the wooded valley, they got a little bit more supplies and food so that they could use it for the trip back. So on February 1st, which is the next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. And from journals and records that the hikers had, their plan was to make it through the pass. So I guess it's kind of like get over the pass and make a camp for the next night on the opposite side. But the weather conditions were getting really bad and visibility was low. It seemed like they lost their sense of direction, but I'm they did lose their sense of direction because they ended up going west towards the top of a different mountain than the one they were wanted to go to. Dyatlov and one of the other hikers kind of realized the mistake that they had made and the group decided, okay, you know, instead of going back a mile downhill, we're going to stay here and we're going to make camp. And they're kind of like on the slope of the mountain rather than like going down towards like the forested area to like have shelter from the weather that was coming in. There are a couple of I guess, investigators, whomever, they speculated that Dyatlov probably just didn't want to lose the altitude that they had gained by going in the wrong direction, basically a mile. So they were like, he probably was just like, look, we're already here. Just hunker down. It'll be fine. Just sleep through the night and we'll, we'll get there tomorrow after we figure out where we are. So... Before leaving, like, I know I'm kind of backtracking, but this, it sets us up for the next part. So before leaving, Dyatlov told the sports club that was basically, I wouldn't say sponsoring it, but kind of like approved this whole group. He told them that they would send a telegram as soon as they gathered at one of, I guess, like the little towns. So it was like how they get through the pass. And then there's that town where they're going to camp at. So he was like, we're going to send you a telegram. Don't worry if it's a little late. You shouldn't expect it any later than February 12th, right? So all of their families knew this as well, because everyone obviously is like, he's going to send the letter to the sports club, but we're also going to like get letters and telegrams and things like that from our loved ones. And... February 12th passes and there's no messages. 
they didn't really have an immediate reaction to the situation, though, because it's like, well, with weather conditions and everything, and we know they're all experienced, like it's a grade three track, trail, trek. <laughs> like, there can be some delay. So we're not too worried, but we're kind of like, uh, I don't know about this. Eight days later, eight Days later, people, eight days. <laughs> so on February 20th of 1959, several of the hikers' relatives demanded a rescue operation. They're like, we haven't heard from them. You guys know how treacherous this trail is. What the heck, you guys? It's been eight days since they were supposed to like get this message to us. We know they hit this one town up. Like, come on, come on, right? The head of the institution sends a first group of rescuers. It's volunteer students and teachers. And they're kind of like trying to make their way through this. Ain't really happening. Okay. They end up sending the army and like police forces. And with the army, the police forces, the students and the teachers, there was planes, helicopters, all of this stuff. It's literally, it's a search and rescue. Like, come on. Like, you know how this is going. We've all seen this on TV or whatever. Just anyway, six days after the traveler's relatives demanded that they send out a rescue operation. So February 26th, 1959, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on that mountain. I don't want to say it. Okay. Cause I don't, I don't know how to say it. What they saw was really weird. They could not make sense of what happened at this campsite. It like every, everyone was just completely baffled as to like what this scene looked like. So one of the students, his name is Mikhail and he was a student who actually found the tent. And he said the tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. As investigators looked further into the tent, they realized that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Okay, this is it's about to go down. Okay, Shiz is about to go down. As they are investigating the campsite, because they're like, why is the tent cut from the inside? And all of their belongings are in here. Like their shoes are in here. There's articles of clothing in here. Like all of their packs are in here. Like this is weird. Like I don't know about you guys. But I ain't going out in the mountains covered in snow while there's a snowstorm without my shoes on. First of all, I'm probably not even going to be on that trail because that is not my scene. So they found nine sets of footprints. Makes sense. There's nine people. Some of the footprints, they could tell the people were only wearing socks or they only had one shoe on or they were even barefoot. I don't know. I don't know, you guys. I don't know. This has just always been one of those things that like, I don't know. It's going to, it's okay. <laughs> they followed the trails leading down to the edge to where the nearby woods is. So like how they were almost like about a mile up the mountain. If they took the trails, they all sort of led to like the edge of the mountain, sort of at the base 
which is why they didn't understand why they didn't just go down there in the first place. Okay, wait. I lied. (laughs) But I didn't. (laughs) So they did find a trail leading to the edge of the nearby woods. So kind of where they thought they should have stopped. Like, according to the journals, some people did write, like, bruh, why did we not go to the forest? Like, it's right. Like, I know we're backtracking, but... I don't know. Personally, I'd rather backtrack and be safe than out in the open on the middle of a snowing mountain. (sighs) Whatever. They have that trail that they followed. And then there was another trail that led a mile to the northeast on the opposite side. So we have people going down to the woods and we have people going the other direction. But they realize the second trail about... 500 meters, so 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered in snow, but they could kind of still make out like, I mean, the tracks just end and there's nothing there. So they're like, okay, well, let's kind of keep going this direction to see if we can find something. So the first trail, they take it to the forest edge. There are large Siberian pines. They are beautiful trees anyway. And (laughs) the searchers find the visible remains of a small fire. I know that wasn't exciting. It's just a fire. But obviously, you know, someone made it there because there's a small fire. They continue looking and they find the first two bodies. It's two guys. I'm not going to say their names because there's a lot of letters and I don't want to mess it up. They are both shoeless and dressed only in underwear. So as they're kind of taking a look around, they're they find these bodies. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get into that. We're kind of gonna get it. We're gonna get into it. Okay, we're getting there. I'm like hyping myself. <laughs> I like really just want to like skip to like the craziness because I mean it's already crazy. But like it gets even crazier. And like I don't even know how far along into this recording I am, but whatever, it doesn't matter. They find those two bodies. They're underneath of a tree, kind of close to a campfire. They're both. Naked for the most part. They got their underwear on. No socks. No, they're barefoot. They are barefoot. Like this is, okay, anyway. They're looking around at this site because obviously something happened here. What happened? We don't know yet. They're looking around. They look up at the tree because they're trying to figure out maybe their clothes are up there. I don't know. Branches on the tree were broken, on this tree were broken from five meters high. So they kind of feel like one of the people was trying to climb the tree to look for something. Like maybe they were looking to see where the campsite was, if they could find their tent again and go that direction. We're still on trail number one. And between the pine tree, so where the two guys are found who are just in their underwear and the little fire and the tent from what it seemed like is, I don't know if it's necessarily like from winds or things cooling down, snow levels had started to kind of go down and they found three more bodies. They found Dyatlov, who is the one who started this whole expedition, got the group together, and two other guys. They were all at separate distances from the tree. So one was about a thousand feet from the tree 
Other one was about 1,500 feet from the tree. Other guy was about 2,000 feet from the tree. So they're all kind of, from the way it looks like to the investigators and the search and rescuers was like, these three guys were trying to make it back to the tent and the other two stayed at the tree. So that's kind of where they got the whole looking for the campsite thing by the one guy, how the branch was broken. Because they don't know, like, potentially... He went up into the tree to just make sure they were making it okay. Or he went up there and was like, land ho, sort of. Like, there's our tent. Head that direction. Right now, this is all we have. We have those five people that have been found. It would take another two months to find the remaining four travelers. It's actually a little bit more than two months. And they were finally found on May 4th of 1959 under 13 feet of snow and they were at a ravine further into the woods which was about 250 feet away from the pine tree it's still the same direction as the pine tree so i don't i don't know I don't know, you guys. So I don't know if they kind of like took that second trail and then came back around and then it was still covered by snow. Because you remember how they said like the second trail, like it went, but then the tracks were being covered by snow and they followed the first trail. But from what it seems like is they, they ended up meeting up the group at the little campfire. <sighs> this is where shenanigans gets real, you guys. So three of the four were better dressed than everyone else it seemed to them that the first five people had died before these four if this is making any sense maybe they took some clothes off of them and it was used by them who knows one of the girls was actually wearing some clothing from another one of the travelers and it was burned and the pants were torn and her left foot and shin. So I guess like her lower leg were wrapped in a torn jacket. So it kind of seemed to them like maybe she had an injury, but they don't know. Or maybe she was cold and the jacket only covered her leg. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. I'm sorry. I like. <laughs> so this is where I guess to the, the real crazy. So now this is the investigation part because I just kind of told you like we found the bodies kind of where they were in relation to each other. So no one is at the campsite. Everyone is like a mile down or like scattered trying to get back to the campsite or down over here by some ravine under 13 feet of snow. Okay, so we found everyone. Unfortunately, there were no survivors. The only person who started this adventure who lived was the guy who had the joint pain and was like, sorry, not sorry, I can't make it. The families immediately request legal action as far as like an inquest started once those first five bodies were found. On medical examination they found no injuries that led to their death and it was concluded that they all died of hypothermia one of the men had a small crack in his skull but it wasn't it wasn't enough for it to be a fatal wound so they kind of just dismissed that but 
after they found the four bodies in May, it kind of shifted the opinion of everyone as to what the heck actually happened. We are, you guys, I don't, these are the first, these are some of the things that happened. We're gonna get a little bit further in because on first examination, it, you guys, I don't know. So one guy, Theo, Theo, I don't, I'm not trying. Okay. I gave up. I gave up so fast. Okay. So upon examination of three of the hikers, this is a man. His name is Nikolai. He has a major, major skull damage. So one of the girls and then there's a guy, his name is Alexander. I am taking the easy names and I am running with it. You guys, (laughs) they both have major chest fractures. There is the doctor who is doing these medical examinations, legit said the force required to inflict the damage on all three of these victims, hikers, was comparable to a car crash, a fatal car crash. But the bodies had no external wounds so there was no wounds that showed that there were any fractures. So how does this, how do I explain it? So when you're in a car crash and you break your ribs or whatever, you're going to have bruising from impact and the impact that it took for those chest fractures and that skull damage, they didn't have external signs as to what could have happened to them. Like if there was any high level of pressure, like whether it be the snow falling on them, it doesn't matter. You're going to have post-mortem contusions. Like they obviously can tell, but they didn't have anything like that. All four of the bodies that were found near that ravine, they had some soft tissue damage to their head and their face. One of the females, the one who had the chest fractures, was missing her tongue, her eyes, parts of her lip, as well as facial tissue. And she had a piece of her skull bone missing. Alexander, aside from his chest fractures, had his eyeballs missing. And one of the other guys had a deformed neck and was missing his eyebrows. That's just kind of random compared to everyone else, but just saying. He was missing his eyebrows. So the forensic expert who was performing the post-mortem examination judged that all of these injuries happened post-mortem. So due to the locations of the bodies in the stream, they were post-mortem. It doesn't sound like it to me, but I didn't see them. So I wouldn't know. I'm not the mortician. It's not a mortician. I can't think of a word. Why is there no one else here with me to tell me the word? Medical examiner. (laughs) Anyway, at first, they were like, okay, there is an indigenous tribe around this area. They're called the Mansi, M-A-N-S-I. And they are a tribe of local reindeer herders. And they're like, okay, they probably attacked this group of people, murdered them because they were on their lands. But... 
they did go to the tribe and they interrogated several of the people and no one knew anything about this. So it didn't support their hypothesis. Also, there were no other foot tracks. The only footprints, trails, anything were from the hikers. Also, if they were attacked by a group of people, wouldn't there be some kind of sign of struggle? I mean, I know there's like a butt ton of snow that covered up most of the tracks and four of the people. So it's like, yeah, I get it. Like, you wouldn't see it right away. But still, underneath of there, there'd be some kind of indication that there was a struggle, like as far as like hand to hand, you getting in a fight. Uh, 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 uh. Another thing was that the temperatures were really friggin' cold, you guys, with the storm blowing and all of this. I mean, it's already cold. You're in freaking Russia. You're in the mountains. Uh, Anyway, it's a tundra. It was negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit with the winds. Most of the dead people were partially dressed. I mean, the guys were in their underwear. The other ones didn't really have any clothes on. Uh, The girl had a jacket wrapped around her leg. Like, what? And like... Some of them only had one shoe on. Some of them only had so- like socks and the other ones didn't have anything. <sighs> but this is where shenanigans start sounding like a cover up, everybody. Because I am not a conspiracy theorist a thousand percent, but I am. I dabble, okay? I, <laughs> everybody knows Some things, uh, how do I explain? (laughs) Everything's got a little bit of truth to it, except for this flat earth shenanigan, Linda, and we ain't getting into that. And I'm glad she's not here because then she can't argue with me. So journalists are reporting what they are getting from, obviously, the people who are doing the investigation. This is what the journalists report. Six of the group members died from hypothermia. Three died from fatal injuries. There was no indication of other people apart from these nine travelers. They did include that the tent was ripped from the inside. All of the victims had died within six to eight hours of their last meal because of their stomach contents. And that there was traces from the camp, obviously like the foot tracks and trails and shenanigans, that everyone had left on their own accord. You guys ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. They also found levels of irradiation on one of the victim's clothing. And they also reported that in order to... Fen, stop it. So in order to dispel the whole theory, because a lot of the locals uh, were like, no, the Mansi did it. We know they did it. So in order to dispel that theory, they kind of did put out, since they said that three people died from fatal injuries, they did put out a statement saying that those three bodies had those fatal injuries, but they could not be caused by a human being. Like there was no way on earth a human would be able to hit something hard enough for that kind of internal damage and the fact that there is no soft tissue damage. So if someone's going to like attempt to hit you, 
that hard unless you're like the mountain from Game of Thrones. I don't see this happening. And even at that, he's going to jack you up and leave bruises. So it's like you're... I don't know. There's no way you're going to hit someone and cause that kind of damage. You crack your rib by accidentally like getting hit by something. You're going to have bruises like, but no one has any external damage. I don't know. I don't know. You guys. Oh no. The documents that they released contained absolutely no information about the skier's internal organs. I know that sounds weird, but I mean, it's a medical examiner report. You're literally going to have everything. You're going to have what the outside looks like, what the inside looks like, damage to tissues, bones, whatever. Everything is going to be in there. But there was absolutely no mention of any of their internal organs. Hmm? And also, there are no survivors. Obviously. At this time, so 1959, 1960-ish, they had come to the conclusion that the group had died because of a compelling natural force. Yes. And because there was no guilty party, because you can't charge Mother Nature with murder, the files were sent to a secret archive. Ta-da! And nothing was ever done with it. <laughs> it's not the end. Oh, no, no. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I know this is so random, but have you ever tried to clean like coins with ketchup? Like the acidity of the ketchup. I'm sorry. I took a break from recording and I was watching uh, one of those like refurbishing an old thing video. It was like this weird little metal flip calendar. And he put it in like lemon juice and water with peroxide. I don't know. I needed something other than that freaking Arnold Palmer I attempted to make. So now we're getting back to the story. Things were Things were declassified. The case was declassified, sort of, in 1997. One of the hikers had a camera that was found at the site. They didn't really release too much to the press and the public as to like what was actually found other than like the tent being ripped up from the inside and the hikers were all in weird spots and everyone was sort of naked and fatal injuries kind of happened but we don't know how they happened so one of the daughters of the hikers actually donated the camera to an archivist they have a foundation it's called the Dyatlov Foundation Dyatlov sorry the <laughs> Dyatlov Foundation and the daughter of one of the hikers gave the camera negatives to an investigator who was on this and also there were diaries from the hiking party. Obviously, like the government and the investigators have them, but they were brought into public domain in 2009. So in 1999 was when the camera was kind of like, some people sort of knew about it. 
and it was given to the private investigator. And then in 1999, Jesus, in 2009 was when the hiker's diaries went public. So people were actually able to see the hiker's diaries. On April 12th of 2018, one of the hikers, Alexander, he was exhumed on the initiative of journalists from a Russian tabloid. So they kind of started this whole thing. Like it didn't give too much information as to why, but they exhumed Alexander. There was a lot of contradictory results that were obtained during the examination after he was exhumed. One of the people who helped with the autopsy said that the characteristics of these injuries are indicative of someone being like hit by a car or being in a car crash. No one knew that in the beginning. So like, I know I said that, but when the press had released everything, they were just like, yeah, fatal injuries, but they didn't know what those fatal injuries were. So now we're getting that kind of out in the open that you know, he has injuries that look like he was in a car crash. And also, they did DNA analysis on Alexander, and it revealed that his DNA had no similarity to any of his living relatives. Excuse me, what? What? How does it even happen? And Yo was not like adopted or anything. Like, hmm? we switched him out. They switched him out. Mm? And it turned out that his name was not even on the list of the people buried in the cemetery that they exhumed him from. Mm? 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 I don't know, you guys. Okay, like, I know I'm getting myself type up here because we're about to get into theories. But y'all, how is he not gonna have the same DNA as his family and then they don't even put his name on like the cemetery registry I can't and they reconstructed his face and they were not convinced (laughs) sorry I'm having like such a hard time uh they were not too convinced that he was who he was supposed to be so when they reconstructed Alexander's face based off of the skull that was in the plot, he did not look like how he should have looked, if that makes any sense. So they kind of feel like Alexander wasn't really Alexander, and that after World War II, someone was living under his name, like the real Alexander died during World War II, and this imposter Alexander just kind of took over his life and was like, yeah, I'm going. My name's Alexander, but uh, that is not how uh, he looks. So a lot of people don't really believe that. So there's something sketchy going on there. Just throwing that out there. Now, 2019, Russian authorities reopen the investigation into the incident. There are only three possible explanations that were ever being considered. One, an avalanche. Makes sense. Sort of. They're on a mountain. It was snowing. Okay. Two, a slab avalanche. I'll get into what the heck that is. Or three, a hurricane. Okay. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. I'm like so close to the mic and laughing like that. A hurricane. Is this the butterfly effect or something? Because a hurricane in the mountains, unless there's like a snow cane, I don't understand how. What? Okay. Anyway, I, look, I don't know. Along with this reopening of the investigation, other things started coming out. Mm-hmm. And there was a 12-year-old named Yuri who became the head of Dyatlov Foundation, and they also attended five of the hikers' funerals. And he clearly recalls that there was something wrong with them. I mean, other than the obvious, he said their skin had a dark brown tan to it. I know people color match when they're... I'm like, why can't I think of these things? Morticians. I'm sorry. So I know that like they do cosmetics and stuff like that to make you look better, but uh, it wasn't like that. It was like there were their skin was dark brown, like a deep brown tan. Also, there were some sightings that were not noted in the 1959 investigation and various witnesses came forward during this period of 2012 because they were like, whoa, excuse, I reported something to these people and they didn't even put that in the notes. Also, the one of the investigators, well, I don't think he was an investigator, he was a police. He did confirm that these people gave them those statements originally. Mm. Here are some theories. I know what I kind of think. So, an avalanche. And also, in 2020, there were reports and research done into this. And they did, like, computer simulations and analysis by Swiss researchers. And then there was also... Russian researchers that have done these same things and they're saying it was an avalanche. It was the most appealing theory. So a snow slab is like an avalanche or like a slab avalanche. So I feel like I'm saying that word a lot. So an avalanche is obviously like the whole thing is coming. And from what I've watched about like a slab avalanche, it's like kind of it's a smaller shift, but it's still just as powerful as like a, a lavalanche, <laughs> an avalanche happening. Oh, I'm really saying that word too much. I don't like it. The regular avalanches that like you're used to seeing in like movies and things like that is called a loose snow avalanche. And that is, I really feel like I'm saying it wrong now because because I'm saying it too much. <sighs> anyway, so that's a loose snow one. Those are the most common type. They mostly happen on steep slopes, and it's usually because of fresh snow. So since the snow doesn't really have time to settle down, it's loosened by the heat of the sun. Duh. <laughs> that was for me. <laughs> um, it's loosened by the sunlight. So these kind of have like a single point of origin, but as they travel down, they become wider, and it's more loose snow because it's freshly fallen snow. So that is the most common type. A slab avalanche, which is what they think it was, it's kind of said to be like a large block of ice that is on the slope, and it doesn't cause the same amount of damage, but thicker ones 
will kill you because it's like a thick ass slab of ice on a friggin' mountain just coming at you. So it's like the top layer of snow. Look, for all you people that don't have snow, this shit is not fun because let me tell you, snowballs with ice in the middle are not cool. And jerks used to do that shit because sometimes it will freeze on top after it starts melting and then they put that shit in the middle and then they throw it at you and it hurts, okay? And that is not cool. Anyway, so the the avalanche is basically like thick, 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 thick piece of frozen snow. And because underneath of it is softer, it breaks off in a huge piece and it starts sliding down. So that is what they think happened. It causes a butt ton of fatalities when it's a bigger piece or some serious injuries. But what I'm saying is that doesn't make any sense considering the fact that no one had any bruising. (laughs) I mean, like, it would make sense to me if people had, like, the external damage that goes along with being hit by a big-ass sheet of ice, you know, because they had the broken ribs, they had the fractured skull, like, it makes sense. And, I mean, they were under 13 feet of snow. This sounds sketchy to me. So, scientist, avalanche. Russians, uh, shoot. (laughs) Russians and Swiss researchers are like, yes, it was an avalanche. This is what happened. The researchers did note that even though the placement of the expedition's tent wasn't really like in the best spot, and when a slab avalanche happens, it's like this big cracking noise. So, it's almost kind of like when you see those videos of sheets of ice falling off the sides of like Antarctica into the ocean. He said that it's, there's a big cracking noise. So you hear that first and it's like a rumbling noise because it's going, it's not going as fast as like a regular avalanche because it's a big sheet of ice. So they can hear it coming. According to him, everything they did was textbook. They conducted emergency evacuation to the ground so they ran down to the forest edge to be safe from the avalanche they took shelter in the woods they started a fire they also did say in that re-release report that they found like a snow cave so they had tried to make a shelter for themselves he said if they had been any less experienced they probably would have done what a lot of people try to do and it's to stay in the tent be dug out and survive but normally that doesn't really happen. And they think that the biggest factor in all of this was actually how experienced they were. And that is actually what doomed them because they said they have more experience. All of them are high level hikers. They all have this grade three hiking pass thing. For people who are less experienced, they would have stayed in the tent and been dug out and survived. So They're basically saying if they stayed in the tent, they would have lived. Who freaking knows? Because this is like contradicting everything I literally just said, but then I, whatever you guys, science. These are what the scientists are saying. But they said because the hikers were so experienced, the avalanches, the avalanches, oh my God, the avalanche are a far bigger, like it's the biggest risk of being out in the mountains in the winter. Duh. And they said the more experience that you have as a hiker, the more you fear them happening. To me, if I was just to go out snowboarding, I would just be like, yeah, a freak avalanche. 
no, that's never going to happen. Like, I don't know. So he's basically saying that because they have all of this knowledge and they know basically kind of what the percentages are, you know, he was like, they're like the C-3PO's of the hiking world. So they're like, we have this percent chance of living. We need to run. That is actually why they died because they got out of the tent because when they got to the tent, obviously like it's a little mangled and jacked up, but that's mostly because it was cut open, snow got inside, this and that. That's what they're saying. An explanation of that is like, they said the group woke up in a panic. The avalanche started to cover the entrance of the tent. They're scared because they knew it was going to happen. And they're like, okay, well, we can fix the tent. Like, that's not a big issue, but we cannot be buried under the snow. And they say that they were poorly dressed because they were probably asleep when this was happening. So someone probably woke up, freaked out. Everyone's waking up. They cut open the tent. They're all half asleep. My, okay, this is all I have to say. If you are an experienced hiker in freaking Russia. Why the hell are you sleeping in your underwear? I understand you probably have some like serious kick-ass fucking sleeping bag, but why are you sleeping in your underwear? You know they ain't sleeping in their underwear in that damn tent. Maybe 12 sets of footy PJs on top of each other. That's what I'm gonna sleep in with like a parka on in my sleeping bag. I mean, they literally said it was like negative 12 degrees. Come on. Well, I, don't play with me. I am not sleeping in that. And like, we'll post pictures of what this tent looks like. You ain't sleeping in that thing. In your underwear. In the sleeping bag. They rip open the tent, run out. They're all confused. They're freaking out. Some of them go this way. Some of them go that way. And so what they think that happens after this is like, they went their separate ways. They're out of the tent. They survive the avalanche. And then after they survive it, they were like, okay, we're going to split up into groups. So we're going to go into three groups, y'all. And one group is going to make the fire, which makes sense because remember the one guy had like burnt clothes, but it was on someone else. And in the report that was released, found out that his hands were burnt. So they're like, yeah, he's probably the one who tried to start the fire since he burnt his hands. And then the group of three that they had originally found, so it was the two guys by the tree and then the three leading up to the tent, they think that those three were going back to the tent to get clothes. And at some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered from the tent or from the dead members. They think that all of the subsequent injuries that were listed as far as the girl missing her tongue... She's missing both of her eyes. The guy is also missing his eyes. The one guy is missing his eyebrows. All of these injuries are post-mortem, and they were due to scavengers eating them after they had died. So basically, they're going along with the whole hypothermia thing. I don't know. Okay? But here are some contradictory evidence that disproves this whole avalanche theory. So the location of the incident, oh my Jesus, I really can't be talking about myself. The location of the incident didn't have any obvious signs of any type of avalanche that had taken place. When they happen, they leave certain patterns and debris in the snow. The bodies that were found within a month were under a very shallow layer of snow. 
So along, like going along with there not being any patterns or signs that an avalanche happened, one of the biggest things is like that tree line wouldn't have, like it wouldn't have looked the way it looked. Like you see pictures of avalanches and they take trees down. And if it's a slab avalanche and it's this big ass sheet of ice coming towards the trees, it's going to knock something over. And there was no indication of any tree damage, nothing like that. Mind you, these people set up their little fire camp right on the edge of the trees. So, huh? Exactly. Since this expedition in 1959. There have been over 100 expeditions in this region since this incident had happened. No one has ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. So it's, it's not really common up there. Like, yes, they have the knowledge that those things can happen because they hike and they go on different trails. But in this trail specifically, there isn't any real indication that those happened there. And there was also a study of the area and they used up-to-date terrain-related physics. They revealed that the location that these hikers were at, it was entirely unlikely for any type of avalanche to have occurred. That the dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which has much, much, much steeper slopes than what they were at, Yes, that could have an avalanche, but they don't have those same conditions in this part of the pass. Like this part of the pass doesn't have those slopes. The way that the sun hits, it's just like physics, y'all. Physics, okay? (laughs) One of the other things that indicated that it wasn't really an avalanche is even, okay, so even let's say that the avalanche did happen. The way that the tent itself was fallen over. So they have the tent set up and when they find the tent collapsed, it's collapsed to the side. And the way that they have the tent, it's like perpendicular to the slope of the mountain. So if the tent was taken out by an avalanche, it would be down, not in this horizontal direction, like if that's making sense. So it was like squished from the side, not from the top. And then one of the bigger things that kind of has me like, uh, maybe they did stay in the tent. And then after they're like, I don't know. Like, I am so, so torn apart about this case. Like, it's so confusing. So we found, we, <laughs> the footprints that they found with those trails and how they are leading away from the tent, they're not consistent with one person, let alone a group of nine people basically in a panic running around, they said that the spacing of these footprints, someone consistently walking at a normal pace. I don't know about you, but if I'm ripping a tent open and running out in my underwear, freaking out, I'm, I'm not going to be walking at a normal pace. I'm probably going to be attempting to run through snow, which I've tried and it's not easy. So that is like one of the bigger things. Now, in 2009, there was a Swedish-Russian expedition that made it to this site. And there are very heavy winds in this location. I mean, they're in the mountains. They're pretty high up. Extremely, extremely heavy, heavy winds. One of the things that this group mainly thinks is what caused this is catabatic wind. Okay, I don't know if I said that right. Basically what this wind is, it's cooling air. (laughs) This is me getting sciencey people. (laughs) It's cooling air on top of 
a mountain, a glacier, a hill, whatever. And since the density of the air is inversely proportional to the temperature of the air and the air is coming down the slope and it's warming as it goes further down, it kind of makes like fog, but it also carries big pieces of ice and snow. So they think, Maybe that's what happened. It wasn't really an avalanche. It was just this wind and people start freaking out. It makes sense. It's happened a lot. And like, it doesn't even have to be in snowy places. Like it happens in just regular mountains when the wind is coming down. And it's just like that really heavy, heavy wind coming from the mountains, which has actually been known to spread wildfires. So it's kind of like, okay, maybe. So with that wind, they feel like they have those two shelters. Yes, I said two, because remember, I had only spoke about one. So they think that near the ravine, those four that were under the 13 feet of snow. So apparently when this wind happens in snowy mountains, oh Jesus, when it happens in the mountains, you're hiking in the snow, one of the things that they teach you to do is kind of to make that under snow shelter. So then you're not really being hit by that wind, kind of like you're, you're in a cave. So they have those two areas because they didn't want to make like one ginormous one. So what they think happened is the four people down by the ravine, theirs collapsed. And they kind of said that structurally from the evidence they got from those declassified folders, it seemed like they were in a cave type thing that collapsed. So, I mean, okay. And then the other one they did find, like it hadn't collapsed, but I don't know. So that, that's wind. So right now we have avalanche and we have wind. Next, we're going to go to infrasound. So infrasound, this, look, I'm not getting too much into this one. Basically what they're saying is, Infrasound can be generated by the wind as it passes on top of the mountains. It is a certain frequency and it can cause the person who hears it or who is experiencing it or who is experiencing it to have physical discomfort, mental distress. You can become panicked. It can make them leave their tent. So who knows? With them panicking and them trying to get back to the tent and them not being able to get back to the tent because it's dark, people froze. If you're hearing the sound while you're sleeping and they're waking up in a panic, you know, I mean, maybe I have panic attacks and uh, night terrors, but I don't think so. The next one, I'm leaving the best for last and I'm probably going to cut a lot of this out because I'm probably maybe two hours into recording this. I've been talking a lot by myself and I promise you, Leslie, this is actually real. This is really real. Anyway, so next theory, theory number three, I guess four, because Yeti, avalanche, wind. Oh, wait, what? Yeti? (laughs) Yeti? Yeah, I don't know. We didn't really go into that, but some people are saying like a Yeti, which is pretty self-explanatory. And I don't know. Theory number five, paradoxal undressing is a symptom. Is that a symptom? Yes. It is a symptom of hypothermia because when you are going hypothermic, you, why can't I think you guys? 
when you go hypothermic and you start shivering, but your body feels like it's cold, it's called the paradoxal undressing because you want to rip your clothes off because even though you're body is freaking freezing. Your brain is like, no, we're hot. It's just like messages, neurons firing, all the shenanigans happening. Your body feels like it's hot to you in your brain, but you are actually freezing cold. So you start undressing. So they were like, okay, that's what it is. And then, so some people obviously died earlier than others, and some people had more clothes on than others. They are concluding that some people died first due to hypothermia, and the others who had more clothing on were at a point where they were in more of a clear state of mind due to tiny fire burnt hands. They were able to get clothing from the people who had died and put that on, but they still died from hypothermia. Now, the sixth one, military testing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is some speculation that the campsite fell within Soviet Union parachute mine exercises. Yes. They think that the hikers woke up to an explosion. They fled the tent. They're shoeless. They found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval. Some of the members froze to death attempting to endure a bombardment of parachute mines. Hmm? And that these brain injuries are from being hit with mines. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, not the brain injuries, like the skull and stuff. (laughs) The other people hadn't been fatally injured, but they were injured. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet Union in this area while the hikers were there. And parachute mines will actually detonate while they're still in the air. So it's like it produces different types of injuries, which actually those injuries that they produce are similar to the ones... That the hikers, look, I don't know, okay? I'm just researching, and these are, like, I'm not a professional, okay? Apparently, these parachute minings, boom-booms, don't leave much external damage, but they will jack you up on the inside. How the hell does that happen? Like, this, this is what I'm not understanding. How? I'm, like, sitting here just like, How? 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 How does that even happen? How are you going to be hit by this flying debris from like a freaking parachute mine and not have any kind of contusions on your outside? Mm? Mm? It's not making sense. Anyway, there is a theory that coincides with this because there are, boop, what are those people called? Other hikers. Witnesses. Remember how I had said something about there being witnesses that one of the police officers does remember taking a statement from, and everyone was like, why wasn't that in here? One of the guys had gotten statements saying that there were orangish spheres in the sky that they had seen, and they were hikers nearby. They were on a different trail, but they were sort of in the same area, I guess. They were like... They were nearby. They're hikers. So they saw these things happening. I don't know what these parachute explosions looks like. Do you? Mm? 
that is one of the things. And the officer, his name is Lev, Leave, L-E-V. He was actually the one who took those reports. And he said he reported it. He put it in his files. They had seen these flying spheres. And he received direct orders from a high-ranking official to dismiss the claim and to not put it in his files. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but that sounds like a cover-up to me. And that's not even the half of it, okay? So we have this. We also have, if you don't remember from like a freaking hour ago, that one of them has radioactive traces on their clothing. They feel like maybe they accidentally trespassed into some radioactive testing or no one knew they were going to be there or no one freaking cared that they were going to be there and we're doing some weird radioactive boom booms or something. I don't know what that meant. (laughs) But they're like, maybe that was it. But at that point, I'm like, wouldn't everyone kind of have traces? Unless they're not telling you that everyone had traces of radiology, radiology, radioactive chemicals, things on them. They also suggest because of those radioactive boom booms, that could be why they went nuts. Like they they went nutso-butso. It seems like it. That's just where I'm going with that. Yeah, so like they kind of, yeah. And then like there's this other one, I don't know, aliens. So this is my last theory because I saved the weirdest one for last. Actually, there's two more. So they said something about aliens. There's not a lot that goes into it as far as like those orange spheres. And apparently there were military-esque spacecrafts seen, but I don't know about y'all, but all of the UFOs I have heard about don't normally look like a spacecraft that humans have created. So I don't know. I don't know. But they said potentially it could have been aliens. And I'm like, word, 100% aliens. Aliens. What else is it going to be, you guys? Hostile aliens. Even though I will... mm, uh, I'll get into that later. (laughs) Maybe I'll do something about aliens soon so then I can go into my whole aliens thing. Aliens. Fen loves that show. Anyway, uh, he is obsessed with ancient aliens. He is my little weirdo. Every time he sees that guy that does the aliens, he gets so excited. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the last theory, the weirdest one of them all, the espionage theory. It is said that two of the members of Dyatlov's group actually are the focus of this espionage theory. So Alexander is a 37-year-old World War II veteran. And why is he there? He's 37. Everyone else is young students and graduates. Like they're, they're fresh, they're fresh blood. And he's 37. Mm-hmm. And also Yuri helped clear up a radioactive leak at a secret Soviet nuclear facility before. Mm? And apparently it has been compared to Chernobyl, but I'm like, what the hell? Why have I not heard of this? Anyway, I'm going to look into that more because that's what I do. This is like, anyway, so two of them, government relations, World War II, Cleaning up some radioactive shenanigans. Maybe that's why 
one of them was radioactive because he had to clean up some radioactive shenanigans before in his life and it's radiating out of him. Murray Curry. Murray Curry. <laughs> Marie Curry. <laughs> oh my God. Potentially, there was the third hiker. It's these two guys. It is Alexander and Yuri and not known hiker number three, potentially. They were working for the KBG, right? Right? And they joined Dyatlov's little group so they could rendezvous with some CIA agents in the Ural Mountains. Y'all, y'all, serious? And they had like some radioactive materials that they were supposed to hand over to them. Hence why there's radioactive traces on people. Okay, on the one guy. Anyway, and they were also supposed to hand over some fake nuclear secrets, right? These KGB agents to the CIA are like, yeah, we're going to give you our secrets. Secret plus. And while they were doing this, they were supposed to take photos of these American agents. But the CIA said, and then, and then, and now, and they caught on pretty quick and a fight broke out and everyone at this campsite died. Where are these two CIA agents? Please explain this to me because you got nine or 10, not including rheumatoid arthritis guy, but this potential third KGB agent. Where, how are you going to have nine, 10 people against two CIA agents? What? Okay, well, I guess we didn't say two CIA agents. They just said CIA agents. So maybe it was more than two. But in my head, I'm like, hey, I don't know. Unless they like did one of those Mission Impossible things where they came in their helicopter and dropped the ladder and then everyone was like, and then went down the ladder, grabbed the shenanigans and was like, what? Don't take a picture of me. And then like freaked out. I don't know. Like I legitimately... I don't know. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's what they said. A fight broke out and people died and CIA guys no dead. And that is what happened. But I personally have no goddamn clue. I would probably say cryptid more than anything else. Maybe it was like one of those things from like Star Trek. You guys remember this? Con! When like he puts that shit in the dude's ear. See, I'm always, I'm always running with that thing because it scares me. It scares me. Maybe they, like, put something in their mouth and then it, like, ripped their ribs or something. Look, I don't know. And then it could have, like, eaten their eyeballs. Hello? Hello? Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Okay? It could have worked. It could be aliens that had a little bug thing in the thingy thing. And I was like, here, eat these people. And it freaking ate the chick's tongue. Oh my God, now I'm going to have nightmares. Jesus, why do I do this to myself? But yeah, so that is Dyatlov Pass. It's a place in Russia. You will never find me there. One, I, oh, maybe I kind of do want to go to Russia though, but I don't. It's pretty. The architecture is really nice. And also I really want to see a snow leopard. They're like one of my favorite animals. So that's Dyatlov Pass. And obviously it was named after the guy, Dyatlov, who does this expedition, headed the expedition. I don't know. Comment on our post. Let me know what you think it was. 
I know this episode was freakishly long. I'm sorry. There was a lot to talk about. And I'm by myself. So I don't know what you want me to do. Kind of hungry. Did I take my medicine? Oh my God. (laughs) Anyway, so like I was saying, what do you think it was? We have espionage, aliens, Yeti, government weapons thingies, cover up. It could have been a radioactive. It could have been a parachute, mine explosions, (laughs) a wind, wind that makes funny noises and makes you go crazy, or an avalanche. I feel like there's probably other things I'm forgetting. Oh, and them getting into a fight. And I mean, like, I have three sisters, so that is understandable because, like, being stuck in that small-ass tent, like, when you see pictures with nine other people, I mean, eight other people, uh, yeah. And I mean, you're hiking together. I could totally see how that happened, but I still wouldn't leave the tent. I would just be like, don't touch me. Your, your sleeping bag ain't touching my sleeping bag. Stay over there. Mm. Oh, and hypothermia. Goddamn. That's a lot going on. No wonder why I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Anyway, I don't know where my dog went. He's been very quiet. Normally he's barking all the time and I can't find him. Okay, everybody, where are we doing our missing person from? Let's pick a random snowy place, Montana. So today's missing person is from Montana. I decided to choose a random snowy state with mountains. Uh, The missing person is April Ford. She is... A 17-year-old white female. She has strawberry or like strawberry blonde hair. She has blue eyes. She is 5'6 and weighs 135 pounds. She was last seen on August 9th, 2022. April ran away August 9th, sometime between 8.45 and 9 p.m. out of her window on foot. She doesn't have her phone. She was grounded and had her keys taken away. She took nothing with her that they can tell. She has no clothes, no bag, nothing. No one has heard from her since. They, the family has filed a report with Flathead County Sheriff's Office. If you hear or see from her or obtain any messages, uh, you can contact the family if you do know them. You can also contact the Montana Missing Persons Clearinghouse at four zero six four 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 two eight zero zero also if you are outside of that area you can call nine one one they do ask that you contact your local law enforcement and once again the number for the Montana missing persons is four zero six four 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 two eight zero zero also the Flathead County Sheriff's Office is four zero six seven five eight five six one zero the missing person is April Ford and she is a 17 year old white female thank you I'm all by myself I don't know how do I end this you guys don't wanna be all by It's still stuck in my head. I've had that song stuck in my head since last night. Jonathan was not happy about it because I was like singing it. (laughs) I don't don't remember why I was singing it because I can. I guess that's why I was singing it. (laughs) 
Uh, anyway, now I got to edit this, y'all. And this is a long ass episode. Like I'm looking and I'm two hours and 14 minutes into it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I can cut that down quite significantly. I hope you guys have a great week. Next week's story, hopefully we have a special guest. Maybe. We haven't had them in a while. I mean, not them, but like one uh, extra person in a while. I I don't know. Jonathan asked me why I didn't ask him to record with him today. And I was just like, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll have him record with us. He's super skeptic, though. Like... He's super sus. (laughs) But yeah, have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And, you know, beep. Oh, my goodness. I put your name out there. Mm. My tall man from a wheel. (laughs) I hope you liked the story. So, like, when I asked my friend to get me, like, a topic, it was, like, CIA, something, something, human experiments. And I went down this rabbit hole for, like, a day and a half, obviously, because I'm doing nothing stuck at home. And I couldn't. I just couldn't do it because everything I found, it was just, like, I kept going further and further. And then I was finding more things. And it was crazy. Also, I need to put that in my notes for next week's story. Yeah. But anyway, that's besides the point. But yeah, I hope you guys have a good week because I'm saying that again for like the 12th time. Put some sunscreen on because I got burnt for the first time ever in my life this year at a music festival, which is probably where I got the vid, even though I'm around it all day at work. Yeah, my meds make me photosensitive and I look blotchy and brown. It's not a cute look, (laughs) but I'm learning to live with it. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ECC the Podcast. You can message us on our Facebook at East Coast Creepin', uh, our Facebook page. You can message us on there, send any recommendations for stories, any missing persons you want us to post, anything like that. If you check out our website, I still don't know if a third person has found that thing. And I even told you guys that shenanigans was on Linda's page. I got to ask Jonathan if anyone has messaged us on the website. Y'all two that found it already, I'm sending your shenanigans out. I'm sorry. I tried waiting. It's not happening, but I'll send you guys your stuff. Yeah, you can visit her website at eccthepodcast.com. It's fun. Some things look like Facebook, not Facebook, MySpace pages. I kind of want to put music on mine, but then that means I have to bother my husband even more than I already do. Who knows? Have a good summer, you guys. Stay safe. Stay healthy. I will talk to y'all later when I have my two sisters with me and I'm not all alone anymore. I love you guys. I always want to say that, so I'm saying it now that I'm by myself. Love you guys. Thank you for all your support. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to East Coast Creepin'. Cover art by Leslie Lozano. Music from Premium Beat. Editing by Larry Bark at Revitalist Recording Studio. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ECC the podcast. Don't forget to rate and review. See ya.